Islamic Finance News, the world's leading Islamic finance news provider, this is IFN Podcast. Islamic sustainable finance is a very compelling proposition. But while it looks good on paper, it's actually harder to materialize in reality. My name is Vinita Tan, the Managing Editor of Islamic Finance News. And in today's episode, we speak to Dr. Scott Levy, the CEO of Bedford Row Capital, and Professor Kevin Haynes, Bedford Row Capital's Head of Social Policy, to understand if there is a hesitancy among Islamic issuers to enter the sustainable finance space, and if so, how can we overcome this? So Dr. Scott and Professor Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, today, we're going to talk about sustainability finance within the Islamic context. So in the Islamic finance world, ethical and sustainable finance is a persistent theme and has been for the last few years. And the reason for this convergence is obvious, obviously because of the common values these two streams of finance hold. And I think it's fair to say that we have indeed seen a lot more take up of Islamic sustainable products, particularly in Southeast Asia. But even so, this asset class is only a fraction of what the Islamic finance industry is. Why is this the case? You know, with so much talk of them being a perfect fit, why are we not seeing more take up? Why are we not seeing this take off? I think it's early days. The the whole ESG revolution, if you like, is is still relatively new as a global phenomenon. And it's early days for Islamic finance. I mean, people are, are, are still unaware of some of the advantages. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's slowly creeping up. But as, as people get to know more, I think it will pick up even more. But for me, it's just because it's still very early days. And, and I'd like to add, I think over the last 12 months, there's been the discussion, and the good news is the discussion has basically crossed into almost every aspect of Islamic finance. Everybody is now talking about it, which is a good thing. I mean, at least at the top of the industry and at the government levels and trying to do things like has been done in Malaysia, trying to create sustainable or ethical or green, whichever aspect of ESG you want. The problem is at the issuer level, there's a lot of work to be done to to create the kind of information and the background and and the knowledge that suits, if you take the conventional expectations about what it means to be an ethical issue or a sustainable issue or a green issuer, there's a lot more communications as needed. And this is something which is from the ground up is a lot of work to do. And I think the problem problem is, is that, as you say, Vanita, that the ethical aspect and the ethical nature of the business, which is so embedded and, and natural into the way people are thinking, to get them mm. to elaborate on that and to explain it and to talk to the rest of the world and give examples about why isn't a natural thing to do because everybody knows the principles you're operating under but you have to be transparent about it and that creates work and effort and disclosures and about things that people aren't necessarily used to talking about as an issuer it sounds to me Scott, based on what you're talking it's just there is this need to educate these investors, this base. But apart from that, what other barriers are there to growing Islamic ESG? I think the um, the biggest the biggest issue is is disclosure 
And I think this is something which is a trend coming from even if you start at the very top with things like the UN principles for responsible investing or principles for responsible banking, there are very few Islamic participants as institutions that are signed up to either PRI or PRB because it requires a level of disclosure that isn't the commercial necessity of doing so isn't quite clear enough. And the level of detail that you need to get to the point of committing yourself to measuring and disclosing on an annual basis. Well, if they can tap into the markets the way they always have done and take a very conservative and traditional approach, why do they need to do this? And there isn't yet a commercial imperative in the same way there is on the conventional side to put the effort into the reporting that's required. If you go from PRI, PRB down into the local level, it hasn't really been implemented yet. People are still working out how do we want to do this. And it's a, even though Islamic finance is relatively new, it, it, it's a kind of conservative approach. Well, we've always done it this way. It's not affecting my pricing. It's not affecting my share price. I can go back to the same people who I've always invested with, so I don't need to do this. But that's going to change. Mm. Kevin, what do you think? From, from a bottom-up perspective, taking, taking a completely different approach, I think that there's a lack of knowledge, not, not just lack of knowledge about the range of, of Islamic products, but a lack of understanding of what some of the, 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 the language means. And I think that unfamiliarity is a bit of a block to some people. So we need to delabel. this is Scott's favourite term, we need to delabel key Islamic financial products so that they're more um, understandable, more readily acceptable to people who, who haven't had that prior exposure. So I think there's a bottom-up issue as well as a top-down issue. About, say, signing up for UNPRI, it is true that there are very few Islamic financial institutions who have signed up for it. Does that mean that this aren't really pushing for that kind of transparency? Well, I think the, the question isn't really, you know, is it a push or a pull? In the conventional world, it's a pull. Investors are demanding disclosures, are demanding certain types of information before they will make actually asset allocation. And that isn't happening to anything like the same. In fact, I don't think I've ever heard anybody mention that on the Islamic side. But I think generally speaking, I think, Vinita, what we're talking about here is kind of a, a magnifying effect as to why there is not more, why is there a lack of capacity? Why is there not more sukuk? Why are there not more issuers coming to the market? Irrespective of the sustainability angle, you know, people talk in the industry about there's not enough supply. Now we're talking about is there's not enough supply of sustainable, but there's overall not enough supply anyway. What we're talking about here in terms of, you know, why they're not the, the, the kind of pull to the market or push in terms of issue more sustainable or, or ethical or green sukuk is overall a problem of, I think this is exacerbated by the lack of supply in the market generally. And we hear this at conferences. We hear this talking about even AOFI secretary general saying there needs to be more supply of issuers. With the take the sustainability angle and the weight of money that's looking for ways to look for the future, ways to kind of protect the earth, ways to, you know, look at investing with a long-term impact, maybe this is something which will overall increase the amount of supply because people will realize that with this being the main talking point in terms of sustainability and long-term, you know, the protecting the environment and making sure there's a world there for our grandchildren, this may help bring more issuers to market in a, in a Sukuk Islamic finance style rather than just going the conventional route because mm. there's an obvious pull from the market where they're looking for 
more ethically based investments. And I think this is probably, as Kevin mentioned, delabelization. I think the ethical side, which ties into ESG around the G and the S, so governance and sustainability, rather than necessarily being E, environmental. It doesn't necessarily have to be environmental, but certainly under the G and the S, I think this is where naturally Islamic finance can benefit from the overall trend. So maybe we'll see more people realizing that, wow, if we call this an ethical structure and we play up our ethics and how we interact with the community at large, including things like wakaf, zakat, and, and, and some of the things that conventional businesses are trying to play to kind of, we make a charitable donation to what we do, this may help attract more investors into Islamic finance. In a way, it's about the branding, the marketing of this, the demystifying of Islamic finance to a certain extent. Absolutely. I mean, as Kevin said, we, we, I kind of have used the term delabelization, which is we, as an industry, don't need, if we focus, you know, it's kind of focus on what's important, which are the ethics and the, and the responsibility of the business, rather than, for example, starting out when you start talking about a, talk, a discussion, say this is a commodity Morabaha product or a Mudaraba or a diminishing Musharaka or whatever the, the actual technical terminology is, isn't the investment case. The investment case is driven by ethics and responsibility, not by which AOFI standard this complies to. And I think that reorientation or delabelization does work. And we have seen this work with conventional investors who aren't really, who are more concerned about the ethics and the responsibility and the and the disclosures and the transparency of the business rather than actually the fact which AOFI standard it complies with. It's also related to, to the burgeoning number of ESG-related regulations that are coming in. Um, the EU has its SFDR. There are regulations in, in the UK, the US, Canada, Australia, Singapore. And I think there's an issue at the moment for Islamic finance about talking the kinds of language that is acceptable, increasingly acceptable to investors, that investors are, are now expecting issuers to be conversant with these various regulatory frameworks, to be providing the data that investors need to demonstrate their compliance under these uh, regulatory frameworks. And so, I mean, this is early days. It's very a very early stage in, in, in the development of these things. But there is a, an important development for Islamic finance issuers to do to get conversant with these regulatory frameworks. It is very early days. And it sounds like it's a lot of work. <laughs> well, so this the is the problem. There, there is a cost of compliance. And that cannot be underestimated. And this is one of the reasons why, even for conventional investors, to meet some of these regulations are coming into finance institutions in various jurisdictions and in various forms, inevitably, as you know, like the DFSA will adopt these because they follow the European, they want to be standardized. So every, you know, all the DIFC entities will ultimately have to deal with this problem. And the sooner they engage, the better. The challenge is there's not a lot of hard advice to say you must do, here's how you fill out the forms. So right. it's problematic, but if they don't, kind of maybe find somebody internally, and I've, I've found this particularly talking to issuers, somebody internally who's aware of even as things as the UNSDGs, something as simple as that. They don't look at it like that because their focus is on, and I think quite rightly so, their focus is on doing good business and making a profit and being, you know, running a successful business. This is, 
you know, some people view this as being it's painful. It may very well be true, but if you want to tap the markets, you're going to look at you know raising capital in the capital markets, or you're looking to increase and, and look into external financing. Somebody has to start paying attention to these things internally in these corporates because they'll get left behind. So then, I guess the question really then is how how can we attract conventional investors into Islam in this G space? Not even conventional, even within like. Islamic finance. How do we get these、uh, Islamic issuers to take a look at this, to actually embrace this? What more needs to be done? I think first of all, people need to be、um, helped to understand what all of this stuff means, and there are pathways through it. There are ways of handling it, but it, it does take a bit of effort, as Scott's saying, to get your head around these things. And then they need to be helped to actually walk the walk. I think in terms of their their practices. The ethical nature, the sustainable nature, are already there. It's about demonstrating that. How do you actually go about demonstrating to potential investors that you're actually doing what you say you're doing? And, and that requires a certain amount of technical expertise. But it, it, it's developing. One final question to wrap up our discussion today is really taking a look at what Bedford Row Capital is doing, because I know you are very active in this space. What can we expect from the company, say,、um, in the next twelve to eighteen months? Well, the, one of the most important things is obviously Kevin's engagement with the business, and we're very happy, very lucky to have him during this discussion around. How to interact with the industry, how to interact with the corporates, developing a reporting framework, looking for ways that we can sift through all of what's happening around sustainability and reporting to help guide new issuers to the market. Ultimately and fundamentally, that is the business of Bedford Row Capital: is working with new issuers and making access to the market easier. If we want to call it democratization, simplification, disruption. The whole point is to try and deal with this lack of supply across the entire product range, and what I mean by that is looking at the sort of Sukuk, the spectrum of Sukuk issuers from very short-dated liquidity management products, through to you know medium-term inflation-linked products, out to long-term high-impact project finance. This is the kind of cornerstone of what we are doing with the market with the Alwasila platform. It started three years ago, and we will continue doing this on all all fronts with the sustainability overlay, which Professor Haynes brings to the table. We 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 feel we're in a very strong position to help guide and help navigate these choppy waters. Having said all of that, the principle is us working with industry, working with the trade bodies, working with, for example, UK IFC on the one hand in the UK, and IAFM on the other, trying to identify where. Our experience can help the industry overall, because ultimately we are not going to solve the problem of lack of issuers ourselves. More participants are needed in the market.、Uh, connecting with fintechs, for example, some of the、uh, technology players out there to help communicate and provide transparency and provide technical solutions to help companies ease their reporting. We are we are talking to one or two of these entities to work with them so that they can capture their expertise. And we can help issuers navigate, and ultimately, that's you know where we hope we'll be in 18 months, two years, three years, five years beyond that is supporting the the development of the industry across and, and filling some of the gaps that exist in the in the product landscape.
out of curiosity, if there is a potential issuer looking into this space and, and they're new, what, what would your advice to them be? be? Don't be afraid of regulation. That's the first one. So even though what we've said about PRI and PRB, those are still principles for now, not regulation. Look internally at your internal processes and you do have to be aware of, you know, have a brief read of the UN SDGs so you understand where you fit into the things that the world is talking about at the moment. And when it comes to kind of the route to market, looking at the capital markets themselves as a source of liquidity, it's, that's not a, a, that doesn't take any kind of technological innovations, but there are players in the market, participants in the market. There is a market space out there. Think about how you would appeal both to conventional, like don't ignore the conventional world because there's a lot to learn. And there are proxies for almost all Islamic issuers in the conventional world, and there are lessons there to be learned. So do your homework, read up about what's going on, understand the market landscape before you actually commit to being an issuer, because there is work to do. For me, there's an awful lot of talk out there. I mean, an awful lot of talk. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> the noise is almost deafening. So, so for me, it's about making it real. We go from nothing to something. We engage in the talk, we engage in the debates, we try to move things forward. But at the end of the day, you've got to go from nothing to something. And that's what we aim to do. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott and Professor Kevin, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Vinita. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. For more discussions on the Islamic finance industry, log on to www.islamicfinancenews.com. You can also listen to IFN Podcast on your favorite platforms, including iTunes and Spotify.